Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME CE activity sponsored by Northeast Georgia Medical Center. There is no commercial support for today's activity. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. Please remember to answer the survey evaluation after today's activity to get your CME and CE credits. If you are watching online, the evaluation link will be listed in the chat and in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Zachary Taylor. Dr. Taylor is the director of the Northeast Georgia Health District. He has been a public health physician for 35 years as an officer in the U.S. Public Health Service and with the Georgia Department of Public Health. Join me in welcoming Dr. Taylor. Thank you, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I'd uh, like to give you an update on the COVID-19 vaccine. Next slide. Okay, uh, thank you. I have no disclosures. Next slide. And uh, these are the educational objectives that I will try to cover today. Next slide. So typically, because of cost and risk, vaccine development can take several years. It is a lengthy and expensive process. And because of this, developers follow a linear process beginning with the identification and selection of the target of the vaccine. Manufacturing typically does not scale up uh, until after licensure of the vaccine. However, in a pandemic, vaccines may need to be developed in a shorter period of time with many steps being done in a compressed parallel process instead of a linear process. Large scale manufacturing can begin prior to the end of the clinical trials. However, I want to emphasize that all of the steps in traditional vaccine development are followed. Next slide. <clears throat> so we uh, realize that many may have concerns about the safety of these first COVID-19 vaccines because they use new technology and because of the compressed uh, fast track time period in which they were developed. Uh, however, uh, I want to emphasize again that researchers have been using ex uh, existing clinical trial networks like those that study HIV treatments and vaccines so that they could quickly conduct these, these vaccine trials. Another critical piece that has been the investment in manufacturing even before COVID-19 vaccines were proven effective. The U.S. government and the vaccine manufacturers have invested millions of dollars to scale up vaccine production while clinical trials have been in progress. And this has greatly reduced the amount of time between vaccine authorization and vaccine implementation. Because of the great financial risks, the investment in manufacturing normally, again, does not happen until after licensure of the, of the vaccine. And as we mentioned earlier, um, messenger RNA vaccines are a faster and cheaper way to produce vaccine because they use ready-made materials. And uh, the uh, uh, next slide, please. 
Currently, in addition to the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, there are four other vaccines that are uh, in human clinical trials in the United States. This includes uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Janssen vaccine, which use a viral vector uh, for uh, uh, obtaining immunity, and the Novavax and the Sanofi vaccines, which use a protein subunit to obtain immunity. Uh, all of the vaccines, except for the Janssen and the Sanofi, are two-dose vaccines. The Janssen uh, is a one-dose vaccine. The Sanofi may be a one-dose or a two-dose vaccine. Next slide, please. So uh, as you know, two vaccines have already received emergency use authorizations. That includes the Pfizer vaccine, which was approved on the uh, 11th of December and the Moderna vaccine, which was approved yesterday. The Pfizer is two doses given at least 21 days apart. The Moderna is two doses given 28 days apart. And uh, I'll go over some of the data from the trials, but they were tested in tens of thousands of adults from diverse backgrounds. And this included older adults and persons from uh, communities of color. Uh, they have been proven to be safe and effective. However, uh, at this time, it is unknown how long protection from these vaccines may last. Next slide. So this is sort of a, a diagram that shows you how uh, messenger RNA vaccines work. What they did is they identified a protein on the surface of the virus, a spike protein, this protein actually allows the, the virus to enter the cells uh, so that it can be re reproduced. They take a segment of that protein uh, and they make uh, messenger RNA that has instructions to make those viral proteins. The messenger RNA is packaged in lipid nano, uh, nanoparticles and is uh, obviously delivered via an injection. Uh, those particles in the messenger RNA enter the cell, uh, human cells, and it induces uh, the cell to manufacture this spike protein, which appears on the surface of the, of the human cell. That in turn is recognized as uh, foreign and, uh, and begins the immune process, which provides the protection uh, from the virus. I think uh, people uh, need to understand that the messenger RNA does not enter the nucleus of the cell and it does not interact with uh, your body's DNA. Next slide. So the Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer uh, clinical trial enrolled uh, 43,931 persons. It was at 150 clinical sites, including 39 sites in the United States. 13% of the participants were Hispanic, 10% were African-American, 6% were Asian, and 1% were Native American, and 45% were aged 56 to 85 years of age. The Moderna enrolled 30,000 persons in 89 clinical sites, 32 which were in the United States. They had 20% Hispanic uh, participants, 10% African-American, 
4% Asian and 3% others. 64% uh, of their participants were ages 45 and older. Next slide. The Pfizer vaccine uh, requires uh, careful storage. It has to be an ultra cold storage. Uh, that's minus 70 degrees centigrade. Uh, it does require two injections, 21 days apart. Uh, and in the studies was found to be 95% efficacious. In uh, those uh, persons in the study, 170 had symptoms and tested positive for coronavirus. Um, of those with symptoms and those that tested positive, 162 were in the placebo group. Nine of those 162 had severe disease. Eight were in the vaccine group. One had severe disease. It's thought that immunity uh, is present seven days after the second dose, and that would be 28 days after the uh, initial vaccination. There were no serious adverse events, but more than half of the persons were found to have fatigue, chills, headache, muscle aches after the second dose primarily. Almost all participants had mild or moderate pain at the injection site. And as I said earlier, uh, the uh, emergency use authorization was issued by the FDA on the 11th of uh, December. It, it's, uh, I should mention that there are re special requirements to maintain the, the cold chain and that makes this a little more difficult logistically to deploy outside of facilities that have, uh, that do not have ultra cold storage available. Next slide. So the vaccine is shipped per, via a, a thermal shipper. And so there are three options for storage. Obviously it can be stored in the uh, ultra cold uh, temperature freezers. Uh, it can also be stored in the thermal shipper for up to 30 days if the dry ice in the shipper is replenished every five days. And uh, it can be stored in uh, refrigeration units that are commonly available in the hospitals. However, that would thaw the vaccine and the vaccine can only be stored in these refrigeration units for about five, five days uh, following thawing. Next fact. Next slide. The Moderna vaccine is also the uh, uh, messenger RNA vaccine and it can be stored at minus 20 degrees centigrade. This is typically the temperature you'd find in a, a, a household uh, freezer. Uh, if it's removed from the freezer, it can be refrigerated for up to 30 days. So this obviously makes uh, deployment uh, and the logistics involved with this vaccine a little bit easier than the Pfizer vaccine. It's also two injections, 28 days apart. In their study of uh, 30,000 persons, it was found to be 94% uh, efficacious. Uh, there were 196 uh, participants in the trial that were found to have symptoms and who tested positive for COVID. 19. Uh, of those 196, 185 were in the placebo group and 30 of those 185 had severe disease. 
11 were in the vaccine group and none of them had severe disease. It's thought that immunity uh, is present 14 days after the second dose, and that would be 43 days after the first dose. It has a similar safety and uh, adverse event uh, profile as the Pfizer vaccine, uh, but again, uh, after the second dose, uh, fatigue, myalgias, chills, headache were common, and almost all of persons had mild to moderate pain at the injection site. I think uh, it's important to understand that you cannot mix and match the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So if your first dose is Pfizer, your second dose should be Moderna and vice versa. Next slide. So obviously at this point in time, there's limited availability of the vaccine. So the uh, ACIP has developed a, a priority uh, order for receiving the vaccine. And uh, so in this first period of time where we continue to have limited doses, uh, our focus is on healthcare workers and persons who uh, work or, or, or residents in long-term care facilities. Uh, following that administration and those groups, we'll move to the next phase 1B, which will include uh, essential workers or critical workforce, persons who have high-risk medical conditions, and adults 65 and older. Uh, again, as we get into a larger number of doses, uh, what will happen is the administration network will expand so we'll, uh, you can get the uh, vaccination at your pharmacies, uh, at, at doctor's offices, probably at uh, mobile clinics, and there may be even uh, some types of uh, uh, drive-through efforts in certain areas to ad address the needs of the population. Uh, and certainly at some point, we hope to be vaccinating the healthy adult uh, population, and this will become a, a sort of a routine part of people's uh, health care. Next slide. So to be clear, we'll, we'll start with the uh, uh, health care workers in long-term care facility residents, move into our essential workers, and then our adults with high-risk medical conditions and adults greater than 65 years of age. And so if you look at this, uh, this sort of bar graph, it, I think one thing you should notice is that uh, you can begin with these other groups before you complete the vaccination process uh, in the previous group. So uh, it's certainly possible if we have sufficient vaccine available that uh, we will begin uh, vaccinating essential workers before we uh, administer the second dose or before we even get to some uh, healthcare personnel at uh, lower risk and vice versa, as we move into the uh, uh, essential workers, uh, we can start vaccinating adults with high risk medical conditions and older adults prior to completing all of the vaccines within the essential uh, worker category. If you look on the right, you'll see how many people are in those different categories. Uh, and once you add up all those numbers, 
it's approximately half of the population. So if we, as we get through and complete phase one, we will have vaccinated half the population uh, and then we can move into uh, the healthy adult population and we'll be well on our way to achieving the desired herd immunity that the vaccine offers us. Next slide. So uh, I think we've sort of covered a lot of this. Um, they are, these vaccines are expected to produce side effects after vaccination, especially after the second dose. The side effects include fever, headache, and mus muscle aches, uh, but there are no significant safety concerns identified in the clinical trials. And at least eight weeks of safety data were gathered in these trials. And again, it's unusual for side effects to appear uh, more than eight weeks after vaccination. Next slide. Next slide. That's uh, the previous one. There you go, thank you. So uh, they're held to the safe, same safety standards as other vaccines. Uh, several expert and independent groups evaluate the, the safety of the vaccine, including the uh, uh, ACIP, uh, the, as well as the FDA and uh, the CDC. Uh, FDA carefully reviews all the safety data from the clinical trials. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, uh, is an independent body of experts, so they're not associated uh, with the uh, FDA or the CDC, and they review all safety data for recommending group uh, before recommending use. Uh, both the FDA and the CDC will continue to monitor the safety of the vaccines uh, after they become, uh, uh, become administered in the population. And uh, we certainly have some existing uh, safety uh, networks that are set up, which I'll cover now. Next slide. So monitoring uh, the vaccine safety is, uh, is a regular and ongoing part of vaccine development. So these sy systems have been set up to uh, be able to do that. Uh, you may know about VAERS, uh, the vac Vaccine Adverse Reporting System. Uh, it collects and analyzes reports of adverse events that happen after vaccine, after vaccination. The Vaccine Safety Data Link and Post-Licensure Rapid Immunization Safety Monitoring System uh, is our networks of healthcare organizations that actively analyze the healthcare uh, information of millions of people. And the Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment, or CISA, is a collaboration between CDC and seven medical research centers uh, CISA assists healthcare providers with complex vaccine safety questions and conducts clinical research studies to better understand vaccine safety. And FDA's Biologics Effectiveness and Safety System, or BEST, uh, is a system of electronic health record 
administrative and claims-based data for active surveillance and uh, research. Uh, there are new systems being developed for to monitor vaccine, and one of those is called vSafe. So this is something that you can uh, uh, register when you're vaccinated. Uh, it's a active surveillance. It uses text messaging to uh, initiate uh, and monitor any uh, adverse events you may have. So you can report these clinically important events uh, to, uh, to VSAFE and that would go to VAERS for follow-up. Next slide. So we know that uh, there will be a lot of uh, information and unfortunately misinformation uh, about the vaccine out there. Uh, this will come from your friends, your family, social media, of course, uh, and even from uh, your medical peers. So I want to review a, a few uh, key facts, which uh, I'd ask you to keep in mind. So first of all, none of the COVID-19 vaccines in use or under development use the live virus that causes COVID-19. So people can experience normal side effects um, after vaccination. Uh, that can include the ones described such as fatigue, malaise, uh, muscle aches, uh, and injection site pain. Um, but these side effects uh, are actually a good thing in the sense that they show that you're having an immune reaction to the, to the protein and that uh, your body will be able to mount an immune response if you're infected. Uh, it does take a few weeks for the body to build immunity uh, to the vaccine. And uh, it's possible uh, that a person could be infected either prior to or just after uh, being uh, vaccinated and they could develop COVID-19 because of that infection. Uh, so that's not uh, the result of the uh, vaccination, it's the result of the exposure that occurs uh, prior to or just after the vaccination. Next slide, please. Uh, I'd also like to emphasize that the, the COVID-19 uh, messenger RNA vaccines will not result in you testing positive on a COVID-19 viral test. And actually none of the vaccines that are currently being uh, developed would, will cause you to test positive uh, on the viral test. That's the, the PCR or the uh, antigen test. Uh, however, there is a possibility that you may test positive on some of the antibody tests. Uh, these tests typically show previous infection. And uh, actually this uh, positive antibody test would indicate that the vaccine triggered this immune response in your body. Um, next slide. So a lot of questions come up about persons who've previously been infected with COVID-19. And so at this time, we believe that uh, immunity to infection lasts at least 90 days. 
In fact, that's the measure we use when deciding whether to quarantine someone who has previously been infected uh, and have a, 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 an exposure after infection. So uh, if uh, we identify a contact to uh, a current infection of COVID-19 and that person uh, was infected within uh, a 90 day period prior to that contact, we would not quarantine that person. However, if they were exposed to the infected person after 90 days or more than 90 days after their infection, we would uh, quarantine that person. So uh, persons who have been previously affected can get uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, and in fact, we would encourage them to if they're in a particular risk category that we're targeting. Um, however, if they like, they can wait till the end of the 90 day period uh, prior to, to being vaccinated. Next slide. Okay, so I know that there are persons who are in different groups who may be concerned about uh, being vaccinated or uh, debating whether or not they should become vaccinating. So I wanna talk about a few of those. First one is uh, immunocompromising conditions. So this can be someone who has HIV uh, infection. It could be someone who has a, a disease process that uh, causes immunocompromise or it could be someone who's taking medication, uh, which uh, is immunosuppressive. So uh, data is not uh, currently available to establish the safety and efficacy of the vaccine in those groups. Uh, these individuals uh, may still receive COVID-19 vaccine unless uh, otherwise contraindicated uh, however, they should be counseled that there's an un unknown safety and efficacy of the vaccine in immunocompromised persons, and there is a potential for a reduced uh, immune response. Uh, so, therefore, they should follow all current guidance that they use to protect themselves from COVID-19 at this time. Now, uh, there's a lot of questions about pregnant women. And there are no data on the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines in pregnant women either. Animal developmental and reproductive toxicity studies are ongoing as well as studies in humans. Messenger RNA vaccines are not live virus vaccines and they are degraded quickly by the normal cellular process. The messenger RNA does not enter the nucleus of the cell and does not interact with DNA. I think it's also important that uh, pregnant women realize that uh, if they develop COVID-19 illness, they may have more severe disease and may be at increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, including preterm uh, birth. So if a woman is part of a group, including healthcare workers, recommended to receive COVID-19 vaccination, and if she is pregnant, she may choose to vaccinate. She should have a discussion with her doctor or healthcare provider to help make that decision. And some things that she should consider in making that decision are the level of community transmission where she lives, 
her personal exposure risk at home and at work, her, the risk of COVID-19 illness to her and the fetus, the efficacy of the vaccine and its known side effects, and certainly, uh, obviously, the lack of data we have about the vaccine during pregnancy. Uh, if the woman is vaccinated and develops a fever, she should be counseled to take acetaminophen as fever has been associated with uh, adverse pregnancy outcomes. Uh, we do not recommend at this time routine testing for pregnancy prior to vaccination. There's also no data on safety uh, in lactating women or the, on the effects of uh, these messenger RNA vaccines on the breastfeeding infant or the production of milk. The vaccine is not a live virus vaccine and they're not thought to be a risk to the breastfeeding infant. So if a lactating woman is part of a group recommended for vac vaccination, she can choose to be uh, vaccinated. So the actions you take in these groups would be this additional counseling and they should be observed as everyone else for 15 minutes uh, after vaccination. <clears throat> Excuse me, next slide. So you've probably heard about the severe allergic reactions that occurred in persons uh, administered the vaccine after the trials. There were, there were no uh, severe allergic reactions uh, of, or anaphylaxis uh, during the Pfizer trial. Uh, so if you have a history of food, pet, insect venom, environmental latex allergies, or a history of allergy to oral medications, or non-serious allergic reactions to vaccines or other injectables, or a family history of anaphylaxis, you may wonder if you should uh, take this, uh, this vaccine. Those severe allergic reactions were thought to be reactions to the uh, components of the vaccine, uh, which may be common in other injectable vaccines. But uh, if you fit into any of these categories, you may take the vaccine. Uh, obviously, as with any other uh, vaccination, uh, type of process, appropriate medical treatment should be available to treat severe allergic reactions uh, in the event of an anaphylactic reaction. Next slide. So there are some uh, conditions where there should be a precaution and consideration of deferral of the vaccine. First of those is if you have a moderate or severe acute illness. So uh, certainly, uh, if you do, there should be an assessment of your risk and you should confer, consider deferral of the vaccine until after you recover. However, if, for, if you are vaccinated, you should be observed for the 15 minutes following vaccination. Next slide. There are also persons who have had severe allergic reactions to uh, another uh, vaccine that would include anaphylaxis or to another injectable medication. Since uh, some of these vaccines and some of these injectable medications contain components that may be also in the uh, mRNA vaccines, there should be a risk assessment uh, to uh, whether or not you should take it. And again, 
uh, you should consider deferral of the vaccination. If for some reason you are vaccinated, uh, you should be observed for a longer period of time, at least 30 minutes uh, after vaccination. Next slide. <clears throat> if you do have a history of a severe allergic reaction uh, to any component of the COVID-19 vaccine, you should not be vaccinated. Next slide. So uh, before you're vaccinated, I would encourage you to learn about the vaccines and to see if the vaccine is recommended for you. If, obviously I'm talking to a healthcare provider uh, group, so uh, it is recommended for you. Uh, as you go to the become, as you go to be vaccinated, uh, you'll be given a fact sheet. So you should read that and you will receive a vaccination record card um, realize that you will need two shots, expect some side effects, especially <clears throat> after the second shot. And I would encourage you to enroll in the VSAFE uh, program. And also you should continue to use all the measures you're currently using to protect yourself uh, in the workplace. Next slide. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, healthcare personers who, <clears throat> healthcare providers who have these post-vaccination signs and symptoms <clears throat> could be considered infectious and could be restricted from work unnecessarily. So I wanna talk briefly about some strategies to avoid unnecessarily excluding or inadvertently allowing healthcare providers with SARS-CoV or other transmissible infections to work. So one strategy is to vaccinate prior to being off for one or two days. So any side effects will, uh, uh, you will recover from those side effects prior to coming back on to service. Um, you should probably stagger vaccinations in your departments or units so that uh, not all healthcare providers in one particular unit are vaccinated at the same time in case some of them are out with uh, some post-vaccination uh, syndromes. And everyone should be aware of the signs and symptoms that may occur following COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, next slide. So the, the approaches I'm going to describe apply to healthcare providers who've been vaccinated in prior three days and have had not had unprotected exposure to SARS-CoV-2 in the previous 14 days. And I want to emphasize that ultimately clinical judgment will have to be used to determine the likelihood of infection versus the post-vaccination symptoms. So next slide. <clears throat> so, um, so if you have signs and symptoms that are uh, consistent with SARS-CoV-2 infection, but not typically found in post-vaccination uh, uh, persons, uh, and this would include cough, shortness of breath, 
rhinorrhea, sore throat, loss of taste or smell. Uh, these, these could be due to SARS-CoV-2 or to some other infectious uh, etiology and are not typical again of post-vaccination signs and symptoms. So for those persons who have those types of symptoms, the suggested approach would be to exclude from work pending medical evaluation and the return to work would depend upon uh, the suspected or confirmed diagnosis. So next slide. <clears throat> so uh, if you have signs or symptoms that are consistent with the uh, post-vaccination such as fever, fatigue, headache, chills, myalgia, or arthralgia, the uh, healthcare provider may return to work if a febrile feels well and is willing to return to work uh, and this, uh, the signs and symptoms appeared in the period after vaccination where you would, when you would expect them to. However, if the fever or other symptoms persist for more than two days, uh, they should be excluded from work pending evaluation uh, and they should consider viral testing at that point. Next slide. Here's some uh, resources. Uh, the references are also included on many of the slides. And next slide. Um, we would, I would encourage you to get vaccinated when it's uh, available to you. I would encourage you to participate in vSAFE so that we can uh, have a, a more robust monitoring system for the safety of the vaccine. Uh, you should share your experience with your coworkers, with your friends and your families, uh, and sort of know a little bit about the COVID vaccine when you talk to them and answer their questions. Uh, and you may wanna also just uh, show that you received a vaccine by wearing a sticker or a button. Uh, next slide. So uh, I personally want to thank all of you for what you're doing, uh, for, for being there on the front line, for taking care of these people who are uh, infected and have uh, severe illnesses due to COVID-19. I know that it's been a, a emotionally and a mentally draining time for all of you. Uh, this is a first step in us getting out of this by having this vaccine available and we can start protecting you uh, first of all, because of your importance. Uh, I'll be glad to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, that was excellent. We do have a few questions, um, so I'll just get started. What are the long-term side effects and or risks? So, um, as I said earlier in the presentation, most of the, the risk of any type of adverse uh, uh, any type of adverse event occurs in the first eight weeks after vaccination, and those were not observed in the clinical trials. However, I think it's important for everyone to know that rare uh, rare types of uh, adverse events uh, may not show up until you've uh, vaccinated. Uh, uh, millions of people. So uh, it, it's possible that as time goes by uh, that we'll see some more rare events occur in persons who uh, are, are vaccinated. 
but at this time, there were no serious uh, adverse events. You may have read that uh, four persons in the vaccine um, arm of the Pfizer trial developed uh, Bell's palsy, uh, and none in the uh, uh, placebo's uh, arm of the trial. However, um, that's not a rate that is greater than you would expect to see in uh, persons in the general population. So it's not thought to be an effect of the vaccine itself. Uh, again, we'll be monitoring the vaccine and we may find out that there are other types of adverse events that are more rare than were discovered in the trial itself. Okay, thank you. Next question. Is there concern about the early participants that receive the vaccine and develop Bell's palsy? Uh, as I just said, oh. that's something that we should be monitoring, but, uh, you know, uh, we don't expect it to be any different than uh, we'd see in the population as a whole uh, that are not vaccinated. Gotcha. And can you talk a little bit about pediatric usage and availability? So at this time, they have not uh, uh, done the or completed trials in children. So it is not recommended for, for use in children. Uh, the CDC and the ACIP uh, are recommending that it be used in persons 18 and older. The Pfizer vaccine and their emergency use authorization from the FDA actually said 16 and older. Uh, so hopefully as time goes by and we complete appropriate uh, safety and efficacy trials in children, uh, it will be available to children, but not at this time. And can you comment on senior dosage? Are they going to get a high dose availability? Is it necessary? Uh, they didn't study that. Uh, at this time, the dosage used in seniors would be the same dosage used in uh, all adults. Thank you. And how can community physician practices get their staff immunized? So there, there's a few ways. Obviously, uh, if they have an association with the hospitals, uh, the hospitals have the vaccine and can uh, vaccinate them. Otherwise, they can contact uh, the uh, uh, public health department, uh, and we will uh, we're we're setting up to vaccinate those community providers. Uh, that includes physicians in private practice and their staff, obviously. Uh, it includes dental practices and their staff, uh, and it includes other types of uh, providers that may not have an association, uh, including uh, emergency medical responders, uh, whether they're EMS or firefighters, and uh, persons who may uh, work outside of uh, the hospital, but take care of uh, sort of home health uh, personnel that may go to people's homes to provide them medical care. Okay. And there were several um, comments in the chat and um, that we received uh, prior. If I've already had COVID, when or will I receive the vaccine? And there were several comments about, should I wait 90 days, 60 days, 30 days? 
Well, if you've already had COVID, you can receive it immediately. There's no contraindication to you receiving the vaccine. However, you may choose to, to wait till the, uh, towards the end of, or at some point in time, uh, uh, during that 90 day period where we uh, suspect that, uh, or think that you will be immune. So you can wait and defer for uh, that period of time but there's no contraindication for you receiving it immediately. Okay, thank you. And is the vaccine something you anticipate that will need to be administered yearly, like the influenza vaccine? That's a good question. I don't think we have an answer to that. We don't know how long the immunity um, that conferred by the vaccine lasts. So it may be that uh, we may have to have uh, uh, revaccination at some interval, whether it's a year, two years, or five years. Um, and we may have to respond to mutations in the virus uh, that cause us to develop a different formulation of the vaccine. Uh, this is something that we'll learn over time. Okay. And there are still some unknowns regarding short-term and long-term side effects of the mRNA-based vaccine as per various sources. When would be an appropriate time to consider getting the vaccine for those of us who are not involved in direct patient care? Two months from now, a year, six months? I think if you work in a healthcare setting, uh, in your, your, your critical to that, that setting, uh, you know, I would recommend that when it's available to you that you go ahead and get vac vaccinated. Uh, every person is going to have to make a personal decision about vaccine. It's, uh, it's not a required vaccine, uh, but I would encourage you when it's available to you to become vaccinated, regardless of whether you're in, in healthcare, um, uh, provision of healthcare, or if you're in a, another type of critical infrastructure structure, uh, work, or if you're uh, simply a healthy adult. Uh, I think that this is our opportunity for us to emerge from this uh, pandemic, which has uh, created so much chaos and havoc for uh, all of us across society and, and especially for our healthcare workers. So. Regardless, I would encourage you to get the vaccination. Okay. And can you receive this vaccine if you've had any other vaccines within the last four to six weeks? You should be able to. It's not a live virus vaccine. Uh, I would talk with your uh, healthcare provider prior to receiving the vaccine and come to uh, uh, a decision with that input. Okay, and is the vaccine IM or IV and which cells actually take up the mRNA? So IM, so, uh, in, uh, so that means that the muscle cells where it's injected are the ones that uptake the uh, mRNA. Okay, and then there was a question in the chat, I can't find it, but they were asking about the ingredients of the vaccine and where can they find that information? Yeah, I, I know that there are, are some ingredients uh, that would typically be found in the 
the vaccine. And I think that the one they're particularly concerned about is something called polyethylene glycol. Uh, But I don't know the specific ingredients of the vaccine. I would assume that it can be found on the the package insert that comes with the vaccine. Okay. And there were several questions around um, patients with um, cancer and those that are receiving the chemotherapy. What are your thoughts on giving them the vaccine? Um, I think it's uh, the same as uh, talking about persons who may be immunocompromised or immunosuppressed for whatever reason. Uh, I think that they should uh, consider vaccination. Uh, they need, as they consider it, they need to understand that uh, uh, we really don't uh, know because it hasn't been studied in persons who are on chemotherapy. Uh, there may be less of, a, of an immune response, but there's no reason to believe that it would interfere either with their cancer or their, uh, or, or their chemotherapy at this time. And they should also consider that uh, uh, if they are infected with COVID-19, what are their risk of having severe illness? So I would say that this is a discussion they should have with their oncologist and and make a decision with the input of their oncologist and their own personal uh, risk preference. Okay. Does anybody in the audience have a question they would like to ask? All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Taylor. We sure appreciate your time. And remember, if you'll answer the survey evaluation for us, um, I know in the chat there's an issue, and I'll get to my desk and fix that for you. Um, We thank you very much. Have a good rest of your day. You too.